All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bergen Park Church. Beautiful summer day here. Why don't we kick things off with a quick word of prayer? Father God, thank you so much for this amazing day. I pray that you would speak through me, Lord, precisely where we all need to hear it. Lord, I pray you would just ignite a word here or a sentence there that might come out of my mouth that would bless the hearer. I pray that you would love us where we need love. Encourage us if we need encouragement. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. In Christ's name, amen. All right, I want to start out our short time together by talking about what I believe is the key to our ministry. This is the central part of our calling to take Jesus Christ to a world that has no clue about him. And I would even go so far as to suggest to you that this is the definition of Christianity. How would you define Christianity? If I were to put you on the spot and ask you to give me a definition of Christianity, what would you say? Anybody? Being like Christ, good. What else? I heard something. Knowing the Lord, good. Anyone else? Good stuff, good stuff. I think they're all good. I would say knowing Christ, not, not knowing about Christ, not doing good works on his behalf, not serving him, but knowing Jesus Christ. Several years ago, I got to go to this Young Life training seminar up in the beautiful Sierra Nevada mountains. It was several days long, and the training was so good. They trained me how to do the talk, how to lead songs, how to counsel kids, how to run a cabin time. Great, great training. But when you get right down to it, all those things, they're all good, but those are just the tools, aren't they? They're just the intermediate goals that we try to master in order to get to the big goal, which is leading someone to Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer said it like this. He said, Christianity is neither creed nor code, but it is knowing Jesus Christ. Now, I like that because it's not creed. Okay, this is what you got to believe, and that makes you a Christian. It's not code. Here's the way that you have to behave, and that behavior makes you a Christian. But it is knowing, knowing Jesus Christ. Now, you got to know that concept is unique to Christianity. If we were all Hindu and we all gathered here this morning, we're all concerned about how to convert our non-Hindu friends, we would not talk about knowing Vishnu or knowing Shiva or knowing Brahma or any of their gods. We might talk about how to do skits and games and songs and things like that, but we would not talk about knowing their version of God. If we were Muslim, same thing. We wouldn't talk about knowing Allah. And yet in Christianity, it is the very core of what we believe that you and I could have a personal relationship with the very creator of the universe. Speaking of relationships, let me tell you about one of mine. When I was dating my wife, Janelle, this goes back several decades ago, but I wanted to create a really romantic evening at home, a good date. So I invited her over to my apartment, cooked her a nice Italian meal. I had rented a movie. That's what we did back in the days before downloads. We rented movies, kids different concept but for some reason I rented the movie Gandhi now here's a tip 
if you're looking to create that romantic spark in your significant <laughs> other's life, don't written Gandhi, okay? There's plenty of movies out there with Brad Pitt and Harrison Ford and Leonardo DiCaprio and Chris Hemsworth and all those studs. Something about Indian guy with the wireframes and the toga just didn't do it for Janelle. It's probably not going to do it for, for your significant other either. But I rented Gandhi. Now, let me tell you this about Gandhi. If you haven't seen the movie or you haven't read his autobiography, go rent the movie. Because here was a guy who was passionate about knowing God. So I was inspired. I got a hold of his autobiography entitled Stories of My Experiences with Truth. And in it, he describes the various acts of self-deprecation and self-purification that he put himself through in order that he might, and he used these words, know God. I want to read you a quick paragraph from his autobiography. This is Gandhi talking. What I wanted to achieve these 30 years, what I have been striving so pining to achieve is for self-realization to see God face to face and to attain moksha, which is the Hindu equivalent of salvation. There are innumerable manifestations of God, and they overwhelm me with wonder and awe. And for a moment, they stun me. But I worship God as truth only. I have not yet found him. But I'm seeking after him with everything I have. I am prepared to sacrifice those things dearest to me in the pursuit of of this quest often in my progress i have had faint glimpses of the absolute truth but to me it is unbroken torture that i am still so far from him i have not yet seen him nor do i know him and since i asked jesus christ into my heart as a little kid from that moment i've known him I have strayed from him. There are times when I have disappointed him. There are times when I have not felt his presence in my life at all. But from that moment, I've known him, and I know him now, and I know you know him. And when we talk, Bergen Park, when we talk about leading someone to Jesus Christ, what we're really talking about is helping them to know Christ, aren't we? But if we don't know him ourselves, if we don't know him ourselves, if he is not our focus to the extent that every song sung from the stage, that every sermon given, that every Sunday school taught and every growth group led, if they do not grow out of a heart that knows Christ intimately, then they're nothing. They're just going through the motions, like dancing to dance, but not hearing the music. Sir Oswald Chambers wrote a great book. I'm sure a lot of you guys have read My Utmost for His Highest. It was a devotional book that we used to give out to new converts about 25 years ago. Here's what Oswald Chambers says. The only way to survive in ministry is to steadfastly refuse to be interested in ministry and be, and be interested solely in Jesus Christ and knowing him. Without that preoccupation, we have nothing to say and no reason to serve. So if, if uh, Oswald Chambers is right and J.I. Packer is right, that it is so important that we have a 
tight relationship with Jesus Christ, how then are some ways that we can improve our relationship with Jesus Christ? There's a lot. There's a lot of ways we could talk about. I just singled out two for our short time together. And the first is simply this. It's what I call, let Christ touch us just like you are. I learned about this with my number one son, Kyle, when he was 19 months old. He had a nine-month period in his life where he threw up every day, multiple times a day, literally. Doctors couldn't do them, couldn't help him. No amount of medicine they would prescribe would plug this kid up. He threw up every day. So, as luck would have it, Janelle's out getting her college degree, and so I was on baby duty one day, and I heard this kind of this funny noise over the baby monitor. Kind of a spurting noise, a spraying noise. So I ran into that room, and uh, there was Kyle. Kyle had thrown up in his sleep, kind of rolled around in it, sleeping, nice even coating around there. Hair had that slick back look. And he's standing on the edge of the bed, and when he sees me walk in the room, he throws up his arms like, pick me up, Dad. So, I, I'm a new dad here, so it's decision time for the new dad. And so I, uh, I don't really want what he's got all over him, all over me. So I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you, spoiler alert, I did. I picked him up, and I held him, and I patted his back, and I made all the pain go away until he stopped crying. And then we took a long shower. But my gut reaction... I will confess to you, my gut reaction was, man, this kid's dirty. This kid is dirty, and I do not want his stomach grease all over me. So what will I do? I'll run into the kitchen. I'm figuring out in my head. I'll grab some rubber gloves, latex living gloves, you know, hot pads. I'll get some hot pads, pick them up with those, maybe barbecue tongs, some baby tongs. Pick them up. I'll take them outside, and then I'll hose him off, and then once he's clean, then I'll hug him. And as I thought about that, it was a couple of days, usually it takes me a couple of days, but I thought I was so ashamed that I felt that way about my son. And I thought, you and I are so lucky that we do not have a God who looks at us that same way that I looked at my son that day. We have a God who sees you and I in our most sinful moments, in our worst moments, in our most embarrassing moments, all he sees is a soul worth dying for. All he sees is a soul worth voluntarily going to the cross and taking those nails over. In no place is this more clear than in Matthew 1. It's a short little three-verse uh, event out of the life of Christ. I'd like to read that to you and use it as kind of a diving board for our time together. A man with leprosy came to Christ and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, he said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cured. Now, we know a little bit more about leprosy now than they did. It turns out it's a chronic infectious disease that attacks 
the skin, the eyes, and your peripheral nerves. Um, the unique thing, though, about leprosy is there's very little physical pain. Now, obviously, your nerve endings die. It's all kind of an inside, spiritual, emotional pain. Here's what I mean. When you're diagnosed with leprosy in that days, where did they send you? To the leper colony. Bing, bing. Brain point for you. It's exactly right. So they take you away from all of your friends and all of your family. So you've got this family separation pain going. And not only that, but to the Jews in that day, if you had a chronic disease, guess what? It was sin in your life. You had to have done something so bad to offend your God to cause him to curse you with this disfiguring disease. So this poor leper had that guilt trip going through his head, too. And not only that, but do you remember the experiment they did with the chimpanzees? They took 40 of them, and they raised them up. They gave them all the food, clothing, shelter, anything they could ever need, but nobody ever touched them. They never got touched. And the end game of that experiment was that they all died because they needed to be touched. We're a lot the same way, aren't we? I'm reminded of that. I, I come back from a business trip, and my daughter, Sydney, used to come home, and she would hug me from behind. I'm still in uniform. She would crawl up my back, and she would hug my head. And it felt so good. If you still got your parents still alive, don't stop hugging them because it feels sensational. Can you imagine this leper had not felt that touch for a long time? And not only that, leprosy is a lot like some of the neuropathies we have nowadays. The big three I like to think of are Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS. And those pathologies take a long time generally for you to die. Leprosy, exact same way. And when Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Details, describes this leper, he talks about him as a mass of leprosy. I think the NIV says he was covered in leprosy, indicating to us that this poor brother had been sick a long time. So out of the pain of the family separation, out of the guilt that somehow he had sinned his way into this, and out of the fact that he hadn't been touched for years, comes this statement, which is so great. He says, if you're willing, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And I thought about that, and I said, why did he ask to be clean? I mean, if I had leprosy, I would want to be healed. Who cares about being clean? So I said, there's something I'm not understanding here. Let me jump in and research it. And so I did, and it turns out with leprosy, you would say clean, you would say be healed, just like any other disease. You would say being healed from leprosy. So why do you think this leper asked to be clean? Well, it turns out clean is sort of an inside word with the Jews, and that it carries the connotation of being acceptable in the eyes of God. So I wonder if going through this poor leper's head, you know, he's got one chance to talk to Jesus, one chance in front of the healer, better make it good. I wonder if going through his head is something like this. You know, Jesus, I don't know what you think of me, but I know I'm dirty. I know I am unclean. I live in a society that reminds me I am unclean 24-7. And not only that, 
but I must have done some unspeakable sin to cause God to curse me with this disfiguring disease. So if God cursed me with this disease, I'm not even going to ask to be healed, but if I could just be so bold, if I could be so bold, could I just ask that you would make me clean? That way I know when this disease finally does finish me off and I go to heaven that I can be with God because I'm clean if you would just make me clean. Notice Christ's reaction. If you don't remember anything else we talk about today, please don't ever forget the way Christ reacted to this leper. He didn't stand back at a safe distance and say, poof, I'm healed, and take off. That's what I would have done, quick, clean, nobody gets hurt, but so that you and I would always know Jesus Christ stood up in front of the entire crowd and he reached out and he touched that leper's skin touched his afflicted skin his his infected skin infecting himself remember as far as the crowd is concerned Jesus reached right out he made an entire life out of touching the untouchable he touched him first and then he healed him. This is even more clear in Romans 5, 8, which says God demonstrates his love for you and me. And that while we were yet sinners, that's precisely when Christ chose to die for us. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking you have to let yourself get all fixed up before God will touch you. Okay, that's the first way. The second way I can talk about that you and I can get our, uh, have a good relationship with Christ is simply this. It's what I like to call becoming like a child. Matthew 18, this is Christ talking. He says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Those are strong words. Unless you become like, this is straight from the mouth of Christ, unless you become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Words like that send shivers up and down my spine. Christ's been business with this. And I can think of at least three traits that children have that would lead Jesus Christ to make such a claim. And the first one is simply this. It's what I like to call the childlike trait of resiliency. That is the tendency to bounce back from setbacks in your life. I learned about this watching my daughter Sydney learn how to walk. When she was first learning to walk, she would take a couple of steps, she would fall flat on her face, would go, would dust her off, would help her to stop crying, and then she'd just take off walking again. She'd fall after a couple of steps, would pick her up, dust her off, and she'd like squirm out of our hands because she wanted to walk so bad. She was not going to take no for an answer because when you're a child, you have resiliency. You bounce back from setbacks in your life, you don't have an ego that gets bruised. You don't have, you know, an image you got to polish. 
All you care about is jumping back in the game and doing it. The point is this. God can use people who will bounce back from setbacks in your life. Be them setbacks in your ministry, setbacks in your personal life, setbacks in your health. Listen, we all have these setbacks in life. But what defines our character is how we recover from those setbacks. So the childlike trait of resiliency, the second childlike trait is what I like to call an openness to adventure. I learned about this childlike trait swinging my son Dylan on a swing at the end of our block. I would put him in that swing, I'd strap him in, and I'd pull the swing up, and as I'm getting it higher and higher and higher, he's getting this big grin on his face like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen, but I think it's going to be cool. And I would let him go, and he would let out this laugh, this kind of squeal, big smile on his face, time of his life. But as I looked real closely at Dylan, I noticed he was gripping those chains for all he was like, man. Like, oh, I could pack it in from one foot high, and I'm a dead man. He was really hanging on. So I stopped the swing, and I would say, well, Dylan, you want to get off? And he'd shake his head. He'd go, uh-uh. And I go, do you, do you want to go again? He's like, uh-huh. As if to say, you know, Dad, I may be scared to death, but I don't want to get off. Because when you're a child, you have this openness to adventure. You have an enthusiasm for new stuff. And when I saw Dylan's grip, I thought, you know, Dylan, he feels a lot like I do in my life. When circumstances are just blowing my swing all over the place. And I start to doubt, I start to wonder, is anybody in charge of this swing that I'm on. But then I remember that it's, it's my heavenly father who's pushing my swing, and I'm trusting in him not to let me get too afraid and not to push the swing so, so high that, that it makes me cry. The point is this. God can use people who say, man, Lord, I'm scared what's going on in my life i do not understand the circumstances that i'm going through and i am confused but because it's you who's pushing the swing i don't want to get off the childlike trait of an openness to adventure okay the final childlike trait i want to talk about is what i like to call dependency j.i packer puts it like this not until we have become humble and teachable Standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. There was a time uh, six weeks ago, I won't bore you with it, but I felt exactly like my son Kyle must have felt that day. He had thrown up in his sleep, and he, he wakes up like, going on here and he stands up and he sees me and is throws up his arms because he knows that his only shot to feel okay as a baby is if dad'll pick him up and dad'll pat his back and dad'll shake him until the pain goes away i felt a lot like that my own human frailty 
is a constant reminder to me of my complete and utter dependency on God. And I will tell you, you might think it sounds a little bit pathetic for a grown man to stand up in front of you and say that I am dependent upon God, but I wouldn't change a thing, especially in this day and age of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and being self-sufficient and walking tall and fearing no man. You know what? That's not for me because my heavenly father tells me that if you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And then James follows it up. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Friends, could I suggest to you that it is, it is exactly this attitude of dependency on him that God loves to see in his children. Friends, we do not need to fear dependency on a God who has proven his love for us over and over and over again. The childlike trait of dependency. Now, that being said, children are not perfect, okay? I can tell you now from experience, when my son Kyle was five or six, we, uh, I bought him a guitar because he used to love to play guitar with me. And uh, this guitar we bought him, I think it was a little green one from Mexico. And uh, so not a big, expensive guitar, but he didn't like wearing the strap. He liked to stand it in a corner, and he would play it kind of like a stand-up bass cello anyway somehow i have no idea how he did this but he managed to put his giant 26.5 pounds of body weight into his strumming technique and he crushed that guitar it just broke in in half and that's not all all my kids are equal opportunity breakers they break what picture frames glasses vcrs hot dogs do not go in the vcr sid uh, DVRs, the whole thing. Kids break a lot of things. Can I get a witness, parents? Anybody else? Is it just my kids? So I even thought this, and it's, this may sound a bit extreme, but, um, you know, if it weren't for one thing, my kids, they wouldn't be anything but a headache to me. And that one thing is that I love them. I love my kids with an immeasurable love. And that's how I know God must love me, because I break so many things. There's so many things that he has given me in life that I have completely trashed. So many times in life I've said, Lord, I'll never do it again. Five minutes later, I always do. I don't know why Christ is willing to touch you and me the way he did that leper that day. But I know that he does. I want to close with an entry from a medical journal. And I chose it because it does show for you and me the extent that Christ goes through so that you and I can know his love for us despite our faults, despite our imperfections. Dr. Seltzer, a surgeon, wrote a book entitled Mortal Lessons about his experiences in surgery. He tells about he, how he had to cut the nerve of a young woman's mouth, which meant that her lip would be sagging for the rest of her life. And what happened with her young husband. 
I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted into a palsy. A tiny twig of a facial nerve, the one to the muscle in her mouth, has been severed. She will be this way from now on. The surgeon has followed with religious fervor the cut of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me. Private, who are they? I ask myself. He in this wry mouth that I have made, who gaze at each other so generously. The young woman speaks to me. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. Unmindful of me, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I am so close. I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. Young ladies, how would you like to meet a man like that? Guys, how would you like to be a man like that? Friends, here's something to believe. Jesus Christ loves us, imperfect as we are. Jesus Christ loves us, flawed as we are. He reaches out his hand and he touches us. He says, I'm willing. Be clean. Let's pray. Father God, Help me here as I struggle to understand, as I struggle to express the extent of your love for us. Father, your word says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our sufferings, but one who has been tempted in all ways, just as we have, yet without sin. You've been there, you've done that. You went out of your way to relate. You went to us and help us somehow to relate back to you. Help us to know you. In Jesus' name, amen.